Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Final four. Pretty awesome Well, on one end. Not as awesome on the other end. And now we're a few hours away from the national championship game that everybody wanted. The one that everybody had been pointing to and hoping for all season long. Baylor-Gonzaga. The rare championship game where you get the best two teams in America. We have that. Now, remember, this game was actually scheduled back in December. And then they canceled it. But it turns out, actually, it was not canceled. It was merely postponed for four months. And now, here we are. Here the bleep we are. We have it. And what we have is this. An undefeated Gonzaga looking to make history uh, against a Baylor team that is looking to make history of its own. No, let me correct that. A Baylor team that looks like an absolute machine that is looking to make history of its own. Because Houston Baylor was the opener on Saturday night, and the Bears put on a hell of a show, didn't they? That was a complete and total hospital job. As great as UCLA Gonzaga was, the opener of that Final Four was just the opposite. Baylor took on a really good, really tough Houston team that plays great defense, and they went through them like they were nothing at all. And the crazy part about that is that game actually started out really, really well for Houston. They had a block on Baylor's first possession, and they forced a shot clock violation too. I thought Giroux might be on Mitchell, but it's interesting, as you say, on Butler instead. Nice curl. Inbounds oh. and blocked. Back to Butler it goes. And shot clock. Violation. The block never touched the rim. Now, wow. Grand Hill, have you ever done that? No. That is incredible. I've seen it in football, but never in basketball. Look at this. Whoa. So that's some Cougar basketball right there. So they get off to a great start on that end. Then they go down to the other end, and they do this. Now it's Jarreau's turn. Two looks, tapped around again. Houston on the offensive glass, so tough. And that's third game, two possessions. Sasser tries, and he hits. Boy, is that reminiscent? I mean, bottom line, that is their game. That's exactly the way they do it. If there's such a thing as the ultimate Houston possession, that was it. Miss a shot, get the rebound. Miss another shot, get another rebound, and then knock down a three. Like, statistically and stylistically, that might not be pretty, but it does win games. Lots of games. It doesn't matter how poorly you shoot it if you just keep getting rebounds and you keep getting more shots. Eventually, you will start scoring. And when you see a possession like that, you think, all right, that's pretty much what we expected. This is what Houston does. This is going to be a fist fight. But then it wasn't. Like, you never want your first possession to be your best possession, but that's pretty much what it was for Houston because they ran into a buzzsaw, and that first possession was the high point of their night because the Bears were looking every bit like the well-oiled machine that they were before their pause. They were doing things like this. Committed to the program after his sophomore year in high school. A little pin down and an open look. Say goodnight. So hard to defend the way they're coming off of screens firing these guards for Baylor we told you they're elite they're getting it done early for the Bears they are elite all three of them they were doing lots of things like that and then lots of things like this Mitchell look at this pass all space the another one yes but it's the roll yep Bomber rolls to the basket the weak side has to help and Butler wide open hot from downtown Jim so a crazy cross-court pass and then another Jared Butler three that time from the corner. Like, that was as comprehensive a beatdown as there has been in the Final Four in a long, long time. Honestly, I thought that was pretty scary. Teams are not supposed to be that dominant in a Final Four game. No one is supposed to go into a Final Four game and have a 25-point lead at halftime. And speaking of that lead, I mean, it's one thing to have a 25-point lead. It's another to get that 25-point lead like this. Mitchell wants another three. Oh, and you want him to play football, Grant. <laughs> what a dominant first half performance. The Bears on both ends. Woo, the Bears are loose. You want to talk about salt in the wound. That first half had already been brutal for Houston. And then Baylor hits that three before the half. What a total kick in the package. 
like not a huge scoreboard difference between going into the halftime down 22 and down 25, but that still left a huge mark on the Cougs. Essentially, everything that could go wrong for them did, and everything that could go right for Baylor did. And nobody would have blamed Houston if they just stayed in the locker room after halftime was over. It would have been fine if they picked up their marker and said, nah, we're good. We're good here. Thank you very much. But they didn't, of course. They came back out. They battled. That's a testament to them, to Kevin, Kelvin Sampson, and to the culture there. But just not enough. Baylor is just that good. Baylor was that good on both ends. Baylor was just better. So my question is, if you've been sleeping on these guys, what's wrong with you? This is a team that was undefeated until February, and they had a three-week shutdown. They didn't look quite themselves coming out of it, and they lost to Kansas, and then in the Big 12 tourney to Oklahoma State, and then suddenly folks were saying, you know what? They're beatable. They're vulnerable. They're not the same. Ah! Wrong answer. They were not vulnerable. They were not shaky. They were just getting their rhythm back. And on Saturday night, I would say they found it on both ends. From the outside, it looked like they never lost their mojo defensively, but the offense was a little shaky at points after the shutdown. But Saturday night, Baylor looked like Baylor once again. The offense was lethal, and they were doing it against a very good defensive team too. Like, they made a really good defensive team look really bad Saturday night. That's how good Baylor was. And now, what do they get for that? Gonzaga, in a few hours. So, to me, the question is this. Was Saturday night the high water mark for Baylor, or is this, in effect, who Baylor is? Did they finally get back to being Baylor once again? Are they that good? Then again, Gonzaga did not go undefeated by accident. They didn't just stumble into this, and they're going up against a Baylor team that does not have the interior presence that UCLA did. So, how does Baylor counteract Drew Timmy and the stash? As long as we're talking questions, how about Gonzaga? How do they respond to a 45-minute war against UCLA that was a grind at both ends of the floor? How do you bounce back psychologically and physically and emotionally from what had to be one of the most draining nights ever. Like I know Baylor and Gonzaga both played on Saturday and that the Zags do this type of thing in conference and that the Bears probably had, what, maybe three hours more rest than Gonzaga? But it seems like they'll have a whole hell of a lot more than that. Let me throw some numbers at you quickly. Corey Kispert, 44. Jalen Suggs, 40. Those are the number of minutes that they played on Saturday night. In fact, four of the Zag starters went 40 or more minutes against UCLA. The only starter who didn't was the stash, and he played 38. He was playing with four fouls down the stretch. So Gonzaga is a tough, tough team, but they're going to need to dig really deep to come back and play at an elite level for 40 minutes again. And it's going to take that elite level to beat them. Then again... If you're looking to make history and become the first undefeated team in nearly five decades, it shouldn't be easy. And if they do it, it would not have been handed to them. They would have earned every bit of it, especially since while I'm looking at things right now, it seems like everybody is jumping on Baylor's bandwagon. Bottom line is this. Does Baylor's best beat Gonzaga's best? Or maybe the question should be, Does Gonzaga's best beat Baylor's best? I'm going to be honest with you now. I've been going back and forth on this one since Saturday night. The line is Gonzaga minus four and a half. So if you like Baylor, you've got to love that and the points. But maybe you think Gonzaga's better, but just not four and a half better. And then maybe you smash the money line. Or maybe it's so close, you don't smash anything. Maybe it's so close... And so good, you don't even need any action. And you're hyped for the game by itself. Maybe it's so close and so good, you don't even need to get down. Hey, you know what? Small changes towards a healthier lifestyle can add up in a big way. But maybe you're not sure where to begin. Let me talk to you about Grove Collaborative. Running to the store has been pretty stressful of late. And there's nothing worse than forgetting something on your list and needing to make multiple trips. Shopping for home essentials should be easy and convenient. And that's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products that work. And the good ones are actually more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? 
Grove Collaborative. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and your planet. So join over 2 million households who have trusted Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier, and shipping is fast and free on your first order. Making the switch to natural products has never been easier. For a limited time, when you go to grove.co slash Rome, you will get to choose a free gift with your first order of $30 or more. But you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash Rome to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash Rome. He is John Rothstein. John, good to have you back. How are you? Never better in Championship Monday can't beat that now john you've had a day and a half to think about it so let me get you to go back to saturday night when you think about that final sequence of the ucla gonzaga game with ucla scoring to tie it and then jalen suggs winning it what are your thoughts a moment for this generation like you and i had when christian leitner made that shot for D to D kentucky in 1992 but the big difference is this when you think about what happened in that Duke-Kentucky game, that was a one against the two seed. This is a one against an 11 seed when a situation occurred where UCLA didn't have three of its projected starters for the duration of the season. Jason Nix obviously did not play to start the year because he went to the G League. And then Chris Smith tore his ACL in December. And then Jalen Hill left UCLA for personal reasons in the middle of the year. So there wasn't a time at all this season where UCLA was playing with its projected starting lineup that Mick Cronin looked at when he was constructing the team for his second year. That is a big thing to keep in mind when you're evaluating, obviously, just the magnitude of what UCLA did. John Rothstein joining us. So when you evaluate the magnitude of what they did and the game itself, have you ever seen a better Final Four game? I don't know if I've seen a better Final Four game, but I will say this. The way that UCLA was able to trade wits with Gonzaga was nothing sort of sensational. I mean, I think well, one thing you look at when you have great games is you have lead changes, you have the ability to go from minute to minute without really knowing what's going to happen, and that's really what we saw in that basketball game. UCLA was sensational offensively. But the one thing we also saw from the Bruins, Jim, and they kind of told me this when I visited with the Bruins staff late Saturday night and also Sunday morning, is that UCLA, like a lot of teams, had issues stopping Gonzaga. And that, to me, is the biggest thing for Baylor. Baylor not only needs to trade baskets with the Bulldogs tonight, they have to find a way to stop Gonzaga from getting layups and also converting at a high level. Gonzaga is in a situation right now where I think they're the best cutting team I've ever seen. No team gets layups like the Bulldogs. We were talking to John Rothstein. All right, John, so what about Gonzaga? When you're looking at them coming out of Saturday night, do you view that as a situation where they were tested and they responded to the test and that's a good thing? Or are you at all concerned that they showed some weaknesses or maybe some chinks in the armor? Well, I think also, we again, we have to give credit to UCLA. And we have to obviously give them a tip of the cap for the job that Mick Cronin did. But I think, you know, you look at Gonzaga, Jim, and here's the thing that I took away after Saturday night. You know, I think that it's fair, obviously, if they win tonight, that they have to join the conversation among the best teams that have ever played college basketball. That's obviously all well and good. But I have also seen teams that have had a couple of losses and win the national championship be more dominant than Gonzaga has up until the UCLA game. And what I mean by that is there are teams like the 2018 Villanova team. There are teams like, obviously, the 2009 North Carolina team. Or even in certain instances, you could say like in the 1990 UNLV team that have been more dominant through an NCAA tournament but didn't go undefeated. Gonzaga was taken to the brink. And remember, UCLA had an opportunity to win the game at the end of regulation with Johnny Juzang having an opportunity to get a layup. They called, obviously, an offensive foul. But, you know, for those great teams, even going back three years ago, 
with Villanova, we saw them really rip through the NCAA tournament like a chainsaw through butter. You won't be able to say that even if Gonzaga wins the game tonight. John Rothstein helping us get ready for Championship Monday, Baylor and Gonzaga. So what about Baylor, John? They put on an absolute clinic against Houston. What was the most impressive part of their performance against the Cougars? And then secondly, what makes this Baylor team so dangerous right now? Well, the way that they can get after you know, I think, you know, teams defensively, you know, if they were a snake right now, Davion Mitchell would be the head. And I think, you know, the one thing you need to look at is Baylor doesn't just have the best defender in Davion Mitchell in college basketball. They also have guys like Mark Vidal, who's one of the top five defenders in college basketball. And, Jim, here's another thing. The most underrated thing about Baylor is its depth because for all intents and purposes, I look at the Bears and I see them as a team that has eight starters when you consider the fact that they bring Adam Flagler, Matthew Meyer, and Jonathan Chamwacha to off the bench. Those three players combined for 30 points and 13 rebounds on Saturday against Houston. And you think about it, those guys would be good enough to start for 95% of the teams in college basketball. For all intents and purposes right now, you are looking at a situation where Baylor has a decisive advantage on the bench against Gonzaga. The Zags, two top thugs, Anton Watson and Aaron Cook, you can tell, are just that substitute. Baylor has eight starters. I agree, John. I love their depth. I love their bench. John Rossing joining us. You know, John, obviously, when you look at Gonzaga, it's always all about how do we keep them from getting out in transition. UCLA did its very best. I mean, they did a pretty good job, and still, they put up points against the Bruins. So if Baylor had its way, what is the pace that they would like to see tonight? I think anything in the low to mid-70s, because, you know, there's the thing. Gonzaga is a team that, again, <laughs> is so effortless offensively. You can play good defense against them, and they can still get 75, 80 points without really breaking a sweat. That's how good they are offensively. They had a 45-44 lead against UCLA at the half on Saturday night. And I said to people, this is way too many points for UCLA. If the score at halftime is under 40, I think Baylor has a legitimate chance to win the game. If it's plus 40, I'm going with the Zags. All right, so what is the key for Gonzaga this evening? Pace, tempo, and also defense. And what I mean by that is Baylor, as we saw, Jim, in the Sweet 16, was able to win in the mud against Villanova and not play its best, obvious offensive game that completely shifted against houston because of how well baylor shoots the basketball not only that they had 23 assists on 29 main field goals against the cougar that's illegal in 48 states jim baylor will not only have to be a stout at stopping gonzaga from getting layups and easy baskets they also have to do what ucla did make shots with regularity and put pressure on gonzaga to keep answering them so from the sounds of things john you you sound like kind of what i said earlier today i said i can make a really good argument for both these teams bottom line who do you like tonight i'm gonna take gonzaga just based on what wants uh what I'm looking at from an offensive perspective, just because I don't know, I don't have the confidence in that, that Baylor is going to be able to trade baskets. And I think Gonzaga's offense will just be too much. All right, John, before you go really quickly, the other big story in college basketball over the past few days has been the retirement of Roy Williams. What is your sense as to where things stand with the UNC head coaching search? And is there any doubt in your mind that they keep that in the family? No doubt in my mind that I keep it in the family. I know that Bubba Cunningham, the athletic director from North Carolina, has been in a situation where he's been reaching out to North Carolina alumni over the last couple of days to gauge their interest on in what they think the program should do moving forward. For me, from everything I've gathered, assistant coach Hubert Davis and also UNC Greensboro head coach Wes Miller are the two names at the top of the list. Would be shocked if North Carolina does not name a head coach this weekend. When you call a Dell Technologies advisor, you are talking to somebody who is not waiting for their turn to speak. No, they actually want to hear what you have to say. They're focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Our advisors listen so you know your small business needs have been heard. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. Then, John, quickly, what about Porter Moser going to take over as the head coach at Oklahoma? He's had a lot of opportunities in the past to leave Loyola. What do you make of that fit for him? 
Well, I think, you know, you look at Porter Moser, Jim, and he's had opportunities to leave Loyola Chicago before. Could have had UNLV. Could have had St. John's. At Oklahoma, he gets the type of power conference job he desired. Great resources, a great athletic director, and Joe Castiglione. And he also gets to have a relationship with Lon Kruger, use him as a resource, a guy who's a legend in our profession. And look, I know Porter Moser had a very, very difficult time when he was obviously thinking about leaving Chicago because he loves, obviously, his life in the Windy City. He loves the access he has, the great games at Wrigley Field. But, you know, if I ever talk to him in the next couple of weeks, Jim, I'm, I'm just going to sound like, look, man, it's not Santa Barbara. Nothing is, John. You know this. Nothing is. Finally, what about, and I'll tell you something else that's not Santa Barbara, but pretty damn cool, Austin. Chris Beard, officially the new head coach at Texas. How do you like that move for him? Well, think about this. Chris Beard took Texas Tech from obscurity to being in a situation where they went to the Elite Eight in 2018, lost to the eventual national champion, Villanova. The next year, they're one defensive stop away from winning a national title at Texas Tech. You put him in Austin with the resources, with the brand that Texas is. I don't think there's any doubt that Texas will be a top 10 to 12 team every year that Chris Beard is the head coach. That is a marriage that is destined for success, much like just the right amount of soft serve from McConnell's ice cream. (laughs) My man, John Rothstein, college basketball insider for CBS Sports, host of the College Hoops podcast, today podcast for Compass Media. And it's a big one tonight, John. Great job, as always. Next time you're in the 805, you let me know. I'll come find you. Thanks. You got it, Jim. Talk to you, man. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Of course. This time, though, don't make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire, and it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? No disrespect, but when I say, how was your weekend? I don't really care how your weekend was. Well, not today, anyway. I mean, generally I do, but not today. Or how you're living, not today. Because... And the reason why I'm saying it just today is because today, Paul Pierce, yes, the Paul Pierce, that Paul Pierce, had himself the kind of weekend that makes your weekend and my weekend completely insignificant. In fact, his weekend blew all of our weekends right out the water. No matter what we did or how unbelievable we think it was, I'm just not totally sure that any of us were supposed to know about how awesome Paul Pierce's weekend was. I mean, his weekend was better. I'm just not sure we were supposed to know that. Unless maybe he knew he was having himself a weekend and wanted to make damn sure everybody did. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that he meant to broadcast part of his weekend because that's exactly what he did on Instagram Live. And it is truly one of the most insane things I've seen in quite some time especially from a big-time name, and especially from a dude pulling a paycheck from the mouse. He is employed by Mickey Mouse. Now, first things first, I'm not hating, I'm not judging, and I'm not telling Pierce or anybody else how to live their life. I am merely a mesmerized spectator, like everybody else. And believe me, everybody who saw this had to reassemble their jaws collectively that had shattered into about a million pieces when they hit the floor. Half the NBA is still laughing so hard, they're wiping tears away from their eyes. So, let me set the scene. Paul Pierce, former 19-year vet, current ESPN NBA analyst, went live on Instagram. Meaning, he turned his blower on and on his current situation and started to broadcast it to everybody. He started broadcasting his current situation to the entire world. And that current situation was Friday night. And Pierce was having himself one hell of a Friday night. My man's at a house party. Sitting, all right, so just envision this right now. We're not on TV, there's no video. It's not hard to find, but if you haven't seen it yet, just envision this. 
He's at a house party. He's sitting at a poker table. He's got a shot of tequila in one hand. He's got a phone in the other. He's got a blunt in his mouth. Right? This is not easy to do. A shot of tequila in one hand, a phone in the other, a blunt in his mouth, and strippers. Urgh! Party gals for days in the background. And from the looks of things, my man looks like he is on one. And I mean on one. Sweaty forehead, swollen, half-closed eyes. And dude is straight up hosting a live broadcast, talking to viewers. These are the kind of pics that you hope that nobody sees. And yet Paul Pierce is all up in here broadcasting it all live. And I mean all of it. Shooting his shot as well to at least one viewer while he's doing all this. Check out my man. He sees some gal named Monica show up in the comments. The live comments. Here's Pierce who's at the poker table in the middle of a hand with another party gal right behind him inviting Monica to come partake. Monica, you should be here. You can make some money, girl. Stop playing. Monica, what you doing? If you're in, L- if you're in L.A., come through. If you're in L.A., Monica, come through. You know what I'm saying? All right, so a truly incredible piece of sound. Paul Pierce soliciting, inviting some random gal named Monica to come on through and make some money. Like, who is this cat? Ja Rule from Fast One? Monica! Listen, like I said, I'm not here to hate. I'm not here to judge. I'm just a mesmerized spectator. I'm just an interested viewer. Whether you care that Pierce is married and employed by ESPN is up to you. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to report. This is not just a sports story, given who he is. It was a sports story that trended all of Friday night. I mean, I can't even play most of the audio from that night, but I can play this. This is from Pierce, still at the same poker table, with what can only be described as an alleged and very possibly hired talent hanging out behind him. He decides he wants to introduce this gal to the entire world. I'm going to play the exchange and then give it the treatment that it so richly deserves after you hear it. Let him hear your accent. I hit Say hi, accent. Hi, guys. She's from Istanbul. Turkey. From Turkey's. We've been to Turkey's before. Did you like it? Wow. I mean, if you missed any of that, don't worry. I got you. Why don't we start from the top? He starts by saying to her, quote, Let him hear your accent. Her response is, I have no accent. Pierce doesn't care and tells her, say hi, accent. Let him hear your accent. Say hi, accent. Hi, guys. My man just said, say hi, accent. Say hi, accent. Huh? Say hi, accent? Say hi, accent. My man thinks that this woman is a parrot or something. A parrot with an accent. And he just does not want her to say hi with an accent. He wants her to say hi, accent. Say hi, accent. Or maybe that's just what he's chosen to calling her. Maybe that's her pet nickname, accent. Say hi, accent. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. He decides to give some background on this woman. He tells the viewers that she's from, quote, Istanbul's. Not Istanbul. Istanbul's. Plural. Like he goes next level and pluralizes the country of Turkey, and then he calls it Turkey's. Twice. She's from Istanbul. From Turkey's. We've been to Turkey's before. Did you like it? Like she clarifies and corrects. She's from Istanbul's, Turkey, Turkey's. Quote, we've been to Turkey's before. From Turkey's. We've been to Turkey's before. And then she says, you like it? 
This guy is so faded that he inverted multiple countries of Turkey. And turkeys. We've been to turkeys before. Yo, big dog, it's Turkey, not turkeys. There's only one. And turkeys. We've been to turkeys before. Sounds like you have a lot of time to go back to turkeys. The rest of Pierce's IG Live was screenshot nearly frame by frame by the gawking internet. It was that compelling and that over the top and that memeable. Again, dude could barely keep his eyes open. He was ripping drinks, ripping blunts, and ripping check raises. He was also ripping shoulder massages from nearly naked women and filming them selfie style while they twerked at his feet. And again, he said this. Let him hear your accent. Say hi, accent. Hi, guys. She's from Istanbul. Turkey. From Turkey's. We've been to Turkey's before. Did you like it? So NBA Twitter is the best Twitter because NBA fans are better at Twitter than everybody else. And because NBA stars love to partake. And the NBA players had a field day with Pierce's Friday night. Bradley Beal wrote, quote, Paul Pierce is wilding. John Morant wrote, dog, I'm weak. Dame Lillard wrote, we've been to turkeys before. L-M-A-O. Turkeys. We've been to turkeys before. And dozens more with just a bunch of crying emojis because... Paul was on one and let the entire world watch when he probably shouldn't have. Now, there's a theory out there that he meant to go live, but only to quote his close friends. It's a setting. It's a feature on IG where you can share your content only to people you want. But since Paul Pierce does not know how to use social media, he just broadcast it to everybody. Or maybe for whatever reason, he wanted everybody to see it. The theory makes sense that he got the setting wrong because my man sat up in here, got faded, hung with strippers, er, probably strippers, invited more to come through to make money, showed a bunch of nearly nude women twerking at his feet, and most of all, referred to turkey as turkeys. And turkeys. We've been to turkeys before. But remember, this is the same guy who once tweeted a picture of an emoji instead of using an emoji, because he didn't know what he was doing. So I really don't know exactly what this guy was thinking or what he meant to do on Friday night, whether or not he meant to go live on Friday night, especially given his marital and employment status, unless maybe he doesn't want to be married or employed, or married to that person, or employed by the company that employs him. I don't even know. I'm not judging, I'm just saying. But here is the best part. And maybe even better than all that. Fast forward to the next night, Saturday, 7.55 Pacific Time, p.m. Paul Pierce, who had been social media silent since his IG Live, tweeted the following at 7.55 p.m. And I quote, good morning. Good morning. Good morning is the new what's poppin' Twitter. Good morning. Good morning, bro. It's 7.55 p.m. Good morning. Are you still on 1P? What an epic tweet. Coming back to social media 18 hours after his IG live performance and tweeting good morning at dinner time is incredible. What a weekend on the internet for the truth. Who is ironically going to need a pretty good lie to cover for Friday night. Because I don't think I was hacked is going to work. And I also don't think there's a wheelchair in the world that can wheel you out of this one, dude. Again, I don't really care. Not only do I not care, that was some of the greatest entertainment ever. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life, either your social media life or otherwise. But I think there are at least two interested parties right now who might have taken exception. Maybe not. Maybe one, maybe neither. Maybe neither care. On second thought, you better get my man that wheelchair ASAP. Because unlike the first time he used it, this time he really needs it. This time he's really banged up. Say hi, accent. Hi, guys. She's from Istanbul. I don't know, dude. That is some of your better commentary if you ask me. 
You know, my other question is, when that was going down, and the entire world is watching that, how is there not somebody who matters to him or close to him not getting to him and saying, dude, dude, no, no, no. I mean, maybe they're trying to text him, and obviously he's too faded to respond. But if I'm like a close friend or family member or agent or manager or anybody who is responsible for helping him watch out for his affairs, business affairs, otherwise, man, I'm knocking that door down. Dude, it's going out live to the world. Yeah, I know. We're just talking some turkeys. Come on in, man. Relax. This morning, he tweeted, earthquake, question mark. Hey, bro, there's no way to run a misdirection on this. He is on record. He's a fan of softball guy because we all are. He is Tim Connolly. Tim, good to have you back. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jim. Good to have you, Tim. So let's talk about where you are. You beat Orlando by 10 last night. That's five in a row, as I mentioned off the top. It's a game, though, Tim, where you were down by 18 in the first half, and then you outscore Orlando 72-44 in the second half. What's that second half say about this team in particular and how good you are? It was encouraging. I thought we kind of sleptwalked through the first half, but um, our guys got frustrated with what they perceived was a, a kind of a, a, a tough home whistle. Um, so it was great to see them respond. I mean, Orlando's got a heck of a coach, and those guys play hard. They came in shorthanded on a back-to-back and um, really outplayed us. So it was fun to see our guys answer the bell in the second half and um, get a big home win. Tim Connolly joining us. Tim, Aaron Gordon had another night. He had 24.7 rebounds in the win over his whole team. From the outside, Tim, it seems like he's been a perfect fit for your team. Take me back to before the trade. What did you see in him that made you think that he'd be a good addition? We needed a guy like him who had versatility on both ends, almost likened to like a left tackle in football, a guy who protects your best player and quarterback and also helps him. Um, and I think he, he both helps and protects Nicola with his defensive versatility and his ability to um, you know, just play physically. He's a real man out there. So we thought he'd be a good fit. Um, he allows us to do a lot of things uh, defensively. He's, a, I think, a really competitive guy and a guy um, that takes pride in his defense, so um, we kind of crossed our fingers, and he's been fantastic thus far. Tim Connolly joining us. Tim, that's not a guy that you get without having to give something up, and it's not a trade that you made lightly because it meant giving up Gary Harris, R.J. Hampton, and a future first-round pick. As a sign of what Harris meant to the organization, there was a digital billboard outside of Orlando's hotel with a thank-you message to him. So what did he mean to the organization, and how tough was it to see him go? He meant the world. I mean, I certainly wouldn't still have my job. We didn't have Gary. He's I was the longest tenure player. He saw a complete culture shift from a team that was struggling to uh, get the 500 to a team that can um, advance in the playoffs. Um, he's the best, as good a player as he is. He's a better guy. So losing him, losing a guy like RJ Hanson, who has a chance to be a really, really good player in, in this league, was hard, but you got to give to get. Um, we saw it with the, the play of Nicola. It was time to push a little bit of the chips in the middle of the table and uh, kind of see what. How, how noisy we can make it this offseason. I'm sorry, this uh, postseason. So it, it, it sucks. The whole idea of trading human beings is, is weird and awkward, and especially when a guy, you get to know him so well and he's done so much for organization. But uh, you know, Orlando got a class act and a hell of a player. I got to say, Tim, I, I know that's hard and that's not fun and not to make light of it, but I love that answer. I thought you broke that down perfectly, man. It does suck to trade human beings, especially somebody who means that much to the team and the organization. And then you mentioned Tim Nicola. Like, I can't believe that, that we got this far without mentioning him or me, myself. 17 points, 16 assists, 9 rebounds last night. He broke Will Chamberlain's record for most 10 assist games by a center in his career. Like, I've run out of ways to explain or describe how great this guy is. How would you sum it up? I think he's like an algorithm. You know, <laughs> or the... Uh, if they said Ted Williams could see the seam of a baseball, I think that's how he processes the game. He never makes a wrong, a, a poor decision. Even his turnovers, you see where he was going with it. Um, he, he's an amazing player, the best player I've ever been fortunate enough to be around. I think we're about to see a, a, a sustained level of play that this city's never seen. Um, he's our leader. He's a fantastic guy. Um, you know, everything he's accomplished is well-earned and deserved. You know, it was not a typical path to superstardom. Um, so he, he's amazing. He amazes me pretty much night to night. 
I had a chuckle. He he is an algorithm. That's a great description. Now, he and Gordon also seem to have connected immediately. Nicola set up Gordon for a bucket six times last night. I, I would imagine that does not surprise you, but what do you make of how their chemistry has taken or gelled so quickly? It's really cool. When I met Aaron, um, we were flying back from uh, to Denver from Orlando. We talked about our team and talked about uh, how unselfish our team is, and that's a huge testament to obviously Nicole and Jamal, but also Mo and his whole staff. And uh, I think Aaron's basketball IQ is, has been probably underrated a bit and just talked about where he can be most effective. And he's meshed so quickly. Um, it speaks to how bad he wants to win. It also speaks to, I think, a guy who really knows how to play the game. So um, when you have big cutters like Michael um, and Aaron and you have guys who can put the ball in the, in the hole like uh, Will and, and Jamal, that starting five is really hard to – hard to stop there's a lot of options out there Monte Morris made that point as well that you got so many cutters and they get to the basket and they get easy good looks and then Tim you mentioned or I should say you added JaVale McGee now JaVale McGee was with the team earlier in his career and now he's back what do you like about what he has to bring to it at this juncture of his career it's, I think it's just really neat I was with JaVale when he was a rookie in DC um, you know we had um, some ups and quite a few downs I was with him in Denver a couple of years later um, and since he left Denver, he's got three championship rings. He's played in four finals. So it's really cool from kind of a personal perspective to see a guy who's grown that much and has enjoyed that level of success. He's the only guy in our locker room with rings. Um, so he brings beyond the obvious physical attributes, uh, a big-time rim protector, a lob threat, a guy who's links and close havoc on both ends. He brings experience and knowledge of what it takes to win it all um, and that's been invaluable thus far I love the guy I love the guy and I love that move in terms of moves Tim Tim Connolly joining us you went to the conference finals last year I think it would have been very easy for you to say we have a talented roster we're more experienced for it we're better for it we don't need to be unnecessarily aggressive or taking any chances but like you just said you push those chips to the center of the table these are really aggressive moves what made you want to take that approach well, we were happy where we were last year, but not content. We thought the last couple of years, a couple of possessions here and there, maybe we could have been in the finals. Um, but we weren't, so you have to be brutally honest. We had we lost a heck of a player in Jeremy Grant. He's in Detroit playing great this year. So that that was a big hole on our roster, that multi-position, um, versatile, 4-3, three, 3-4. Three, when you're trying to win at the level we're trying to win, you're going to face some just monsters. It's Giannis, it's Kawhi, Paul, LeBron. I mean, the list goes on. And without that guy, it's hard to take yourself too seriously. So that was a focus of ours. And certainly going into the trade deadline, our rim protection has not been where it needs to be. And JaVale has established himself as one of the premier rim protectors. So it, it's easy to identify where we need to get better. It's hard to, at times, make deals. But we were fortunate enough that... Um, we got those two deals done, and we think we're primed to make a, a real run. So, Tim, really quickly, you mentioned LeBron. When you see the sort of issues the Lakers have with injuries to their key players, is that something you take notice of, and does it feel like maybe the window cracks open a little bit wider? I've seen LeBron, I think, since his freshman year of high school. That guy just regenerates. So I'm sure he'll be back ASAP better than ever. But I think what's neat now is because these young guys have won enough – um, they believe in themselves, and you know it's almost like you don't give the guys you see every day enough credit. Uh, Nicola's, I think, the best player in the world, and we have to treat him as such, and we have to know when you have the best player in the world, when you have one of the biggest gamers in the world like Jamal Murray, who, who's playing into a superstar status, and we saw he did last year in the bubble. Um, you know, why not us? It's, you know, I think we have the talent. I think we have a uh, fantastic coaching staff, and you know, if we don't believe, then no one else will. Why not us? One last question about one more guy. Michael Porter Jr. is currently hitting 44.9% of his threes. I bring that up because no player in league history has hit 45% of their threes in their age 22 season. He's knocking on the door of that. He's also grown as a defender. So how high is his ceiling overall? I think Michael could be one of the elite scorers um, in our league. Uh, I think he's going to be one of the best rebounding forwards we've seen in a long, long time. His defense keeps improving steadily. Uh, what's underrated about Michael is how much he cares and how hard he works. He's obsessed with basketball. I mean, he's looking at his family. You know, come, his mom was a heck of a player. His dad would, played uh, collegiate at UNO down in New Orleans. So he's, it's in his blood. You know, when you have a guy that talented, 
who has those physical tools and he's obsessed with it, you know, I think the sky's the limit. Mm. Nuggets look great. They've won five straight. He joined the Nuggets in 2013. He is the president of basketball operations. Tim Connolly locked in. Tim, I appreciate you. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for doing that. Thanks as always, man. I appreciate it. I know it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or you're running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting on a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not there yet, you might feel a bit tempted to try to sneak across the tracks. Don't ever do it. To the naked eye, trains appear to be further away and moving slower than they actually are, and they can't stop quickly. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. Over one mile to stop. Think about that. By that time, it's too late, and the result is a potentially deadly crash. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly. Even if it sees you, it's going to end in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. Paid for by NHTSA. So I've said it before, I'll say it again right now. Major League Baseball lacks events right? Because the season is so long and because there are so many games, there aren't that many moments that are appointment television. There aren't too many things in the game of baseball that you know ahead of time like, oh, I've got to see this. I have to be watching this. There's so FOMO with this. Shohei Otani is one of those things though. Otani is an event. He's a walking, talking, dealing, mashing event. He's appointment television. If you don't believe me, I suggest you go back and review the first inning of last night's White Sox-Angels game. Because in the top of the first, Otani's on the mound. He gets the first two batters he faces out. He walks one, and then he gets a ground out to end the inning. The point is not that he worked out of that inning without giving up a hit or a run. It's that his first pitch of the game was 98.2 miles per hour. Later in the inning... He hits 100.6 miles per hour. So if you were at all concerned about whether or not he could bring the heat after having elbow surgery, you can file those concerns away. He's all good. And that was just the start because the top of the first was only one part of the Shohei Otani show because in the bottom of the first, he then did this. First pitch swinging. Oh, and first pitch crushing! Here's a guy that throws the ball 101 on one half of the inning, and the next one is the first pitch, 95 plus, 450 feet. Man, I mean, that ball was crushed. Wow, that was ridiculous. I mean, that's all true, and that does not begin to do justice to it. I mean, first pitch swinging, first pitch crushing, and my man went up and he got it and he murdered it. Like, murdered the baseball. Like, holy crap. Like, an amazing thing, even for a major leaguer to see. Or an amazing thing for us to see, even from a major leaguer. I mean, did you hear the way it sounded? The sound of that bat. The sound of the ball hitting the bat. I mean, that sounded like Stapp going back into studio when he recorded Marlins Will Soar. Run that back and listen to the way this sounds. First pitch swinging. I mean, if you haven't seen it, and you probably have, but if you haven't seen it, go find the video. It's an amazing thing to see, but even an ama- a more amazing thing to listen to. That, that sound, man, that was a sound. That's the sound of a ball traveling 115 miles per hour. That was Otani doing the damn thing to that damn ball, and that ball landing 451 feet away from contact. First pitch swinging. <laughs> so as a mini recap, This guy throws a pitch just a shade under 101 miles per hour in the top half of the inning and then homers it 115 miles per hour in the bottom half. Leave aside the fact that he punished that ball the way he did. Put that aside for a minute. He made history the moment he stepped into the batter's box. That was the first time since 1903 that a pitcher was hitting in the number two spot in the lineup. Remember how mind-blowing it used to be when a manager had, like, the gonad 
to bat the pitcher eighth. Like, oh, no, he didn't. Look at Tony La Russa. Look at what they're doing. Who is this guy, Babe Ruth? You're going to bat your pitcher eighth? This dude's in the two-hole committing murder on the baseball with a bat. You know how insane that is. Let me put it to you another way. Do you know how many people in the history of baseball can do that? Better yet, do you know how many people in the history of the planet can do that? Because I know how many people have actually done that. One, the classic multi-tool player. You know, the guy who can run it up there at 100 miles per and then hit it 115 miles per and hammer it 451 feet. I never thought that I would say this. I never thought that I would say there's a player in baseball more versatile and more dominant than Mike Trout. But Mike Trout might not even be the most electric and dominant player on his own team right now. That's how fired up I am for Otani in his game, and especially coming back from that injury. I mean, even this guy's outs are exciting. He had a line drive in the second inning, a line drive out that was nearly 110 miles per hour. That was the hardest hit ball of the night aside from that bomb. So the guy crushes baseballs when he's not throwing them. And yes, I know that he walked five guys last night as part of a seven strikeout performance, but I don't care. I mean, I really don't. This guy could walk 15 guys per game. If he's striking out fools the way he does, crushing pitches the way he does, I'm going to be glued to my TV every single time this guy plays. I love everything about the guy. And I got to admit, I love everything about the guy, so I was sort of tripping when this happened in the fifth inning. The next 3-2. He got him! Stassi's got to finish with the throw to first base, and it's mishandled. Fletcher throws home. That's wide. Otani goes down at the plate. The White Sox score, but of much greater import is the health of Shohei Otani. Both runs have come in to score. The White Sox tie it in rather bizarre means. Uh-oh does not begin to do justice to that. I mean, I don't know what freaked me out more. Seeing the catcher drop a third strike that would have ended that inning or seeing that wild throw down to first that created the play at the plate that resulted in Otani getting taken out at the ankles. How terrified do you think the Angels were when they saw their guy get clipped at home plate? How shocked do you think Joe Madden was? I mean, this dude must have been throwing up all over himself seeing Otani rolling around on the ground. Imagine given everything this guy's come back from and seeing what he did in those five innings. Imagine seeing this guy start his season by getting his ankle tendon shredded. But he said after the game that he was okay, which was an enormous relief. I mean, you got to protect this cat at all costs. Baseball needs this guy in the field as much as possible in the worst way. We all do. Because that's the guy you pay to see. That's the guy you drop everything you're doing to watch pitch and swing it. There has never been a guy like that before. So the last thing we need is that guy leaving his tendons on the field, especially on a third strike that gets away from the catcher. Scud dodged, I hope. Hell, I need this guy in the field as much as possible in the worst way. That's how good he is. That's how exciting he is. And if that's what he's doing in his first start of the season, I can't wait to see what this guy does the rest of the way. First pitch swinging. Oh, and first pitch crushing! It's so awesome the way this guy turns on that pitch. And he went up and got it and reversed it. And then to see this guy a few innings later in the dirt, sprawled out, man, that would have been the worst. The worst. Hopefully, thankfully, it does not appear that it is. You can follow him at Ross Tucker NFL, friend of the program, and a man who hates peeps, hates them with a passion. He is Ross Tucker. Ross, what's going on? How are you? Jim, I always love the last nugget you throw in there, man. You, you, got, you got the best research team around. Peeps are disgusting. Put them right up there with Cadbury eggs. Like, if you like either one of those things, you, there's something wrong with you. The eggs don't bother me a lot, but I see you working with the peeps, Ross. The peeps are pretty disgusting. So really quickly, if there's somebody listening right now who thinks that's a reason to go, who loves peeps, what would you say to that person? Well, I mean, if they honestly like peeps, I would, I would just love to have a sit-down with them and try to figure out, Jim, where it all went wrong. You know, was it childhood? <laughs> 
Was it college? Have they not tried like a Reese's peanut butter cup? Are they not aware of things like Skittles and Starburst? Have they never had a Hershey chocolate? Like, here's the thing. First of all, peeps are gross. Secondly, they're not even like in the top 30 of things that you would choose to eat. So there's so many things going on there. I mean, it's decision-making. Let me just tell you this much. I don't think very many successful people in life eat peeps, Jim. Let's put it that way. I think that's where you stop right there. I, I'd walk off on that. That's true. Like, you, name me one person you respect or one person who's had any element of success in their life that have, that have ever put more than one peep in their face. I, I agree, Ross. Well said. All right, so last week, the owners, Ross, approved a 17-game regular season. As somebody who now covers the game and as a fan of the game and no longer plays the game, what is your reaction to that now becoming official? Yeah, I mean, obviously not surprised, right? We all knew it was coming, and it doesn't bother me. I know a lot of people are up in arms about it. You know, from my perspective, as a guy in the media now, if anything, I'm just a little bit annoyed that can't say, oh, this team's going to be 8-8, eight and eight. this team's going to be 10-6. and six. We have to adjust our numbers right. and get used to teams, you know, finishing with 17 games. But I actually like it from a player standpoint, and I think it's interesting you don't often hear this perspective, Jim, because most of the players that get the attention are the top 50 players, the perennial pro bowlers, the Alvin Kamara, J.J. Watt, etc. But, man, I'm just telling you, Jim, like there's only about five of those guys on a team. And if you got to late December and you asked all the other guys, hey, hey fellas, you guys want to play one more week? And, you know, the guy's making $1.7 million, get another hundred grand. Every single one of those guys is going to say yes. Like, every one of them is going to say yes. They know they might only play three, four, five, six years. They know how priceless every one of those game checks is. So they did it for the money. The owners did it for the money. The players did it for the money. But the players get a a bigger share of it now. They get 48.5%. They know what they're getting into. And I think I've told you this before, you know, if that meant that I played one less year, you know, I don't know how much money I made in my seven years, but let's say – they had an extra game. I played six years instead. Okay, I was sweet. Then I would have been 27 when I started in my next career instead of 28. I'm, I'm fine with that. Ross Tucker joining us. I agree with you. I think there's are maybe five guys per team that would say that. Alvin Kamara was not happy about that, but there aren't a lot of guys who make that kind of money. So, yeah, I would agree with you. Ross, we, you've spent a lot of time on this on your podcast, and we would need a lot more time, but I just want to bring up Deshaun Watson really quickly with you. And he's being accused of inappropriate conduct, ranging from harassment to sexual assault in 21 different lawsuits. And then you see his attorney responding with a statement from 18 massage therapists who say, Watson's great. So what's your reaction when you see this entire thing? Yeah, so two things, right? Uh, The first one is, and this does not mean, I'm sure other people have mentioned this, Jim, this does not mean he's guilty. I've never heard of a guy having that many massage therapists. You know, people are really, really particular. And I know I was. You know, once I got a chiropractor I liked, that was my guy. You know, depending on what city I was in, Buffalo was Dr. Ridlinski. I wasn't going to anybody other than Dr. Ridlinski. You know what I mean? Like that, that becomes your gut, your body's your life. And you don't want to go somewhere where they're going to mess it up or, you know, every time you get a massage, you have to fill out that form. It's like, what are your, what are your issues? And you have to write down, oh, I had a back surgery. I had this. I mean, is, is he filling out 40 some forms? And then even more bizarre. And we didn't have Instagram when I played, which makes me really old, I guess. But you know, to just reach out to people on Instagram, like random people. Hey, can you give me a massage? Like I, man. So first of all, people don't switch very often. Secondly, you usually ask the team for like a reputable place or someone they recommend. You're not like on Instagram going and just finding random people. So it's bizarre uh, to say the least. I thought it was interesting too. I had Seth Payne on today's Ross Tucker podcast And people haven't talked about this enough, Jim. You know, Seth played 10 years, five for the Texans. He does Houston Sports Talk Radio now. He said that he felt like Deshaun's approval rating was in the city of Houston was still like a 90% even after he demanded a trade. And I thought that was a great – like, I never thought of it that way. When's the last time a guy, the star player of a team, demands a trade – 
and everybody in the city supports him. Like, if that happened in Philadelphia, Jim, no chance. I, I, I just can't get over the fact that that's how beloved he was before all this stuff came out. The guy says, I want out. I want to get out of here. And the city backs him and not the team. I think, Ross, to answer that question, probably because that team is so jacked up and has made so many bad decisions and the fans were so upset and the guy was so beloved coming in that he was given the benefit of the doubt, right? Like that he must be right. He kept his mouth shut when DeAndre Hopkins was dealt and has always been that pro and that guy. I guess that's the only way to explain that because he was that beloved and that team was just that embarrassing in everything they did. It's a, it's a really good point where, you know, if, if 90% of the people still backed him, how many would still back him if the Texans hadn't been an embarrassment of an organization at that point? It's a good point, Jim, just to wonder how much of it is just they love Deshaun that much and how much of it is they just saw that much uh, that the Texans were a train wreck and it was almost like voting in favor of Deshaun Watson over the team was was more a reflection on the team than it was even of Watson. Ross Tucker joining us now. It's a good point, Ross. So if you're an opposing team right now and you need a quarterback – and you know what's going on with him, Deshaun Watson, and we're not exactly sure where this leaves him. If you're an opposing team, would you make a deal for him? I, I don't think you can do that right now. I mean, that, that would be such a bad look. You know, the only teams that could ever do something like that would be the teams who have someone at the top that really just does not care what other people think. So it almost reminds me of, the Cowboys, when they signed Greg Hardy, and Jerry Jones was just like, yeah, I don't care. Okay, everybody's going to criticize me and say I'm a terrible person. Yeah, I don't really care. I can see Belichick being like that. Okay, whatever. I don't, really care. I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think anyone's going to do it now. And the crazy thing is, I mean, you know, it's almost like, you know, I do the Eagles preseason games on TV, and I do Eagles pregame. I'm almost wondering if them getting those two more first-round picks Next year, with the Dolphins trade and, and presuming Carson Wentz plays every percent of the time, I almost wonder if the Eagles would potentially be in the driver's seat to get Watson next year mm. if Hertz doesn't work out because who else is going to have that much ammo? I, I just don't see how it can happen this offseason. I think at some point he's going to have to get these legal issues resolved one way or the other and then it might be a situation where Watson gets traded next offseason. And, and people say that about Russell Wilson, too. Ross Tucker joining us. They do say that about Russ also. Now, Ross, what about the, the 49ers? They give up three first-round picks. And we're not talking about for a Deshaun Watson or Russell Wilson. We're talking about three first-round picks for an unproven commodity. What does that tell you about the 49ers and what they're thinking? And if that pick does turn out to be a franchise quarterback, are the three first-rounders a bargain? Yeah, so the first thing is, remember when like the Bears evidently offered three first-round picks and a two and two defensive starters? They're like, oh, man, that's a lot. That was for Russell freaking Wilson or Deshaun Watson. I mean, the Niners gave up more than three first-round picks. They also gave up that third-round pick this year for QB3, rookie QB3 to be named later. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be Lawrence. It's not going to be Wilson. It's going to be the third guy. Nobody seems to know who it'll be, whether it's Lance or Fields or a lot of people think Mac Jones. But, yeah, I mean, if anything, and I know there's a financial element to, of it too, but if anything, it increases the compensation that you would expect the Texans or the Seahawks to be able to get for their star quarterbacks if they elect to move them at any point. As for the Niners, I think they just got tired of Jimmy Garoppolo getting hurt, and they just realized it's not sustainable. And even though there's not a lot of dead cat money on the contract, he just makes too much money. If they want to start to lock up some of these other young players like Nick Bosa and Debo Samuel and other guys next few years, they just need a, a, a much cheaper quarterback. And I think that they think they can get a guy that can play at Garoppolo's level very soon at, with that number three pick. And look – if they end up getting a guy that becomes their quarterback for 10 years and ends up being a good player, there's almost nothing that's too much to give up. The flip side is, I, I don't know, man, a year from a year ago, we would have been saying the same thing about Jared Goff and Carson Wentz and what the Rams and Eagles gave up to get those guys, and now neither one of them is even with their team anymore. So it can change quickly. 
It's extremely well said. Seven years in the NFL, an NFL analyst. He is host of the excellent Ross Tucker Football Podcast, a Westwood One and CBS Sports Network broadcaster. You can follow him at Ross Tucker NFL. Hey, Ross, are you on tonight's game? Are you a college basketball guy? And how are you playing that game tonight? Gonzaga minus four and a half. I'll take a shot and ask you that. I am a college basketball guy. It's probably like my second favorite. Well, uh, other than football, my favorite sports, college basketball. I'm just so mad at myself right now, Jim. I fell asleep at halftime Saturday mm. night, bro. You are an East Coast guy, dude. I fell asleep at halftime. So, like, that's one of those. You know, that first game stunk. I was watching with my father-in-law. Then I'm watching the second game, and it's like, okay, UCLA played awesome. And they're still losing. Gonzaga's going to win. When I you had a couple up, of packages you know, of peeps. You had a couple of packages of peeps. You went into a peeps coma, and you napped it out, right, Ross? I, I, I'm so mad at myself. And, you know, next day, greatest college basketball game ever, blah, blah, blah. And I see the shot. And I'm, I'm, so I don't know. I, I might have to go back and watch that some more. I, I still like Gonzaga. Baylor was really impressive, but I would lay the. And the only thing I don't know is that, that, that had to have taken a lot out of the Zag. Right. See, that's, that's a great question. I'm wondering that myself. Go to Sacramento, Ken. My man, Ken, what's going on? What's going on, Romy? It's good to talk to you again, my you brother. You too, brother. You too. Time. You too, Ken. Appreciate you. What's up? Hey, man, I was calling to say, you know, that Gonzaga-UCLA game is the game for the ages. And, you know, when you have contests like that, they take their character much from the team that lost than from the team that won. UCLA did everything a team can do to win that game the other night. They shot above 55%. I believe their turnovers were below 10 Everything you can do to win a great game, they did it. They played as well as UNLV did. I mean, Duke did against UNLV in 91. They played as well as Wisconsin did against Kentucky a couple years ago when both of those teams knocked off those undefeated teams in the semis. They were Joe Frazier against Muhammad Ali in the Thrill in Manila. And when you have the loser come with a contest like that and they cannot get the win, it it, it goes to the greatness of Gonzaga, for that team to stand up and take those haymakers, and that's what they were given. They were given haymakers. The shot-making, when the shots needed to be made in that game, were unbelievable. Clutch, everybody stepping up and being big. I'm here to tell you it was almost emotional watching that game. And for a UCLA fan, you had to feel all the emotion of that team walking off the floor, heads held high, but nothing to be bad about. We would only be blessed if we can get something as close tonight as what that was. Romeo was a great opportunity to watch a great team. Gonzaga is one for the ages. Thanks for the call. Have a great day, man. My man, Ken. Good to hear your voice. Rack him. Good night now.